Hi, Janina. Hello, Emma. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much, Janina. How are you today? Oh, well, I'm all right. You're all right. right. That was very yeah. formal, given that we've been talking for like 40 minutes. <laughs> Um, and I, I have yeah. just spent like twenty minutes explaining why Boudicca is a literary construction to, you, <laughs> to your great pleasure. Well, you know, sometimes we have to talk about something completely irrelevant before we talk about whatever <laughs> we're talking about this week. Yeah, yeah, and insight into how this podcast is remarkably similar to our genuine conversations. <laughs> Um, but with fewer libelous statements about people that we vaguely know. Yeah, yeah. We sprinkle those yeah. a, a lot through a lot more freely when we're not recording ourselves. Yeah, because we know legal responsibilities. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be fair, I don't know if we have the audience to justify the assumption that we have legal responsibilities at this point. Maybe. Because it's only Maybe. a problem if someone who cares hears you. That's true. I suppose it's best not to take the risk would be my feeling. I guess so. Like, don't slander people and then it won't be a problem should they find out about it. I mean, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we only slander people who've been dead for a very long time. Yes, and And you can't probably can't prove it's slander because historical sources are, you know... Open to interpretation anyway. Yeah, and what are they going to fucking do about it? What are they going to do about it? Die again? Yeah, like come back from the dead, in which case we've got worse problems. Yeah, or maybe they'll come back and save us from the nightmare that is the I mean, current world. I suppose it would be a distraction. It would I be suppose. a dis- distraction. But I feel like yeah. at least a few of them could maybe teach us all how to farm and stop using yeah. cars. That's true. That's true. That if they got useful. over their shock at moving tons of metal. Yes. And yeah. they probably wouldn't. I feel like if you took somebody from like the pre-industrial past and like popped them in a city, mm-hmm. then they would probably struggle with like how disgustingly dirty the air is and stuff as well. I don't. That's an interesting question though, because we may have a lot of pollution, but we do have effective sewage. That's true. That's true. So maybe it would be a kind of swings around about situation. Yeah. What's worse, the smell of exhaust fumes or the smell of human feces? I feel like that's a what are you more used to mm. situation. Like you kind of get used to car exhaust fumes. That's true. And I feel like if you hung around like manure and feces all the time, maybe then you just you, don't notice it anymore. It would become background smell. Yeah. 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 So if you put popped one of us back in like the medieval past, we'd be like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. This is I need a mask. Yeah. That's, anyway, that's a fair point, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about today. No, this is a second part of our first two-part series. Yes. By the way, this we- is history sexy, and we answer your questions about history. Yeah, and we, we do. You're Janina, and I'm Emma. Yeah, that's the situation as it stands currently. As it currently stands, no changes from the last episode. Hopefully, you listened to the first episode of this one, and this isn't your first episode because otherwise that. This is going to get confusing. Yeah, because that would be bad luck on your part because this is our literal first ever part two of anything. <laughs> yeah, just stop now and nip back and listen to last week's episode. Yeah. And then in about an hour, come back and we're going to, because we're just going to pick straight up off from there 
which was the end of the Han dynasty. Because what we're doing is dynasty by dynasty breakdown of Chinese history. Yeah, not a big question. with jokes. Not a big... Very small. Yeah. Very small, which is why we decided to split it into two episodes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and even then, we did, we've skipped over all the complicated bits where it suddenly China divided into five warring dynasties and that sort of thing, because that happens a couple yeah. of times. It happens quite a few times. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense. Like, this is a massive area of land and it is tribal, essentially. So different tribes keep coming to the fore and then sometimes there's just no dominant group. Yeah, and, and also we are fucks off on really own. talking about a huge amount of history, like a solid 3,000 years of history. Yes. And people in general are very good at hanging out with each other in no. for a long time. Yeah. So... It is but, probably one of those things where you think, like, English history and European history is intimidatingly old. You know, I come from New Zealand. We've existed as we are for, you know about 200 years and only been inhabited by any humans for about 800 (laughs) or 900 let alone have like established sophisticated systems of government or anything like that and so england seems intimidating to me and then you look at china (laughs) (laughs) china putting everybody to shame except maybe like sumeria is the only other real place like um like iran iraq yeah, that area is the only other place that's putting the rest of us to sh- that's putting the rest of us like that can be compared to Chinese history really in terms of yeah. But la- so last time we did from um one thousand six hundred BCE. Uh, I've just realised I'm using my loud mouse and Oliver's gonna. Come <laughs> uh, so we did from one thousand six hundred. BCE all the way to the end of the Han Dynasty, which was in 220 CE. So almost 2,000 years yeah. of, of solid history and a lot of things. So go back and listen to that because there was a lot of stuff in there like Confucius and yeah. some very thrilling military innovations. Yes. And then from 220 CE to 589 CE is what's called the Period of Disunity, where there was no no significant dynasties. It's called the Six Dynasties period because it there was like there was no unified China at the time. Everyone was fucking yeah. and fighting and hurting each other, and that's where the period of the Three Kingdoms is. So and that stuff continues even ahead, like through some of the areas we're going to talk about, because yes. like there'll be one big main empire where they're called you know the emperor is the emperor of China, but there are still other groups who have their own leader who is the emperor of that little dynasty yeah on the off to the side which is still technically a chinese dynasty but they're they're so look at the look at the wikipedia list of chinese dynasties and you will understand why we can't hit (laughs) all of these little side ones so we just we've gone with the major dynasties which are in the song that I made Janine Janina sing in the last episode. So we're only doing the ones in the song. Yeah, and we um, should probably reiterate this is very very superficial. Um, <laughs> beyond superficial. Yeah, it's too much stuff to cover in detail, and uh, we neither of us, not even Emma, are experts in Chinese history. Also, apologies ahead of time if we mess up any pronunciation. Um, of names and that sort of thing it's probably better to say when when we mess up all of the pronunciations but it 
Chinese is a language that's very different from our own <laughs> when yes. we're doing our best. Yeah, so that's where we ended last time. And we're coming back in now with the Sui dynasty. Yes, which kicks yeah. off in 581 CE. So yep. we can stop saying CE now because it's just... Everything, everything is, is common era, yeah. So the Sui dynasty starts off with a guy called Emperor Wen, also called Yang Jian. This took a lot of... It took me reading about a lot of dynasties before I clocked that what happens is someone is born and given a name, in this case a name, Yang Jian, and then when they become emperor, they assume their imperial name, essentially, which in his case is Emperor Wen. Yes, some of them have lots and lots of names. Yes, um, yeah. Which is quite challenging to follow sometimes. And I, don't know, I, I don't know if this is a kind of a timekeeping thing, because there's one a bit later where he... He assumed his imperial name and then was basically kidnapped for a while, so wasn't emperor. <laughs> and then when he comes back, he has a new imperial name. So I, uh, so I don't know if this is meant to mark periods of rule or if it's just he was a bit tired of the old one and wanted a new one. Um, <laughs> wanted a new one. Yeah. I have a feeling that they might have like quite complicated meanings. Yes. Like the names are... Like sometimes they'll say like mean different things, which are like so it might be presenting this is a different phase of my rule, therefore I have a different name because the first name represented the first phase of my rule, and yes, now I will represent sure. something else. So whereas the first one meant like azure water, which represented how pure and flowing my reign was going to be this for my name now means like lead brick which shows how i'm no longer going to be flow with the times but i'm now gonna fuck with people yeah like so it might well be something like that because i'm pretty sure a lot of them had names that meant something that they wanted to represent about their their rule sure so it's kind of like how um in english history rules are sometimes given a name usually after, after the fact in the case of most English monarchs to yeah. represent something about their rule. Yeah. Sometimes British monarchs take different names. Like Charles says that he's going to take, I want to say George maybe. Oh, really? He's not going to be King Charles III because he doesn't want to be associated with Charles I and II. So when he becomes king, he's going to have a different one. I can't remember off the top of my head what it is, but it's definitely not Charles. I mean, I don't think that's going to take off. <laughs> I mean he can, he can say it everyone's still going to call him Charles probably I don't know because I feel like everyone's quite bootlicky aren't they like if he tells everybody now like yeah my name is Charles but I'm King George then mm. maybe eventually it's like when I was at high school they changed the way they marked years and we went from being I was in third form and then the next year I was suddenly year 10 but no one used it everyone <laughs> still just in fourth form yeah Anyway. Anyway, so <laughs> the Su Dynasty. So yeah, sorry. this dude, Yang Jin, he had been regent in the northern Zhao court at the end of the Sixth Dynasty's period. Mm-hmm. So he was regent while the emperor was just six years old. Emperor Jing was only six years old. So Yang Jin was like this, I can't be bothered just being regent. <laughs> I'm going to take the throne um, mm-hmm. and declared himself emperor when. 
So he claimed that he was the heir to the Han dynasty, which dates back to last week's episode. Yep. So he was trading off their legacy to restore, to claim the right to restore China and unite all of these warring factions. The name Xu that he took for for the dynasty, it was from his old title before he usurped the throne, which had been the Duke of Xu, which means to follow, which is nicely ironic of him, I think. I mean, I guess he was meaning it that this was the dynasty that was following the Han dynasty, but given that yep. he refused to follow and in fact <laughs> stole the throne from his six-year-old grandson, doesn't quite track the whole way through. No, but... You know, if you're emperor, you can tell everybody what you're doing and everybody has to say, yes, yes. cool. Especially yeah. if you do what he did, which was a massive purge. Just <laughs> <laughs> Of anyone who might disagree with him on how good he was at following. Yeah, yeah, just purged, <laughs> purged the entire royal family, um, got rid of everyone who could stand against him and set about abolishing all of their policies. Because I think, and again, I'm not, this, this is a complicated thing Oh, it appears to be a complicated thing. I don't know how complicated it is because I didn't research this. It's too much detail. But <laughs> there have been a lot of anti-Han policies, which I think are, like, I, I think this is basically ethnic problem, like ethnic discrimination yeah. against the Han families. So he goes about getting rid of all that stuff, obviously having him proclaimed himself an heir to the Han dynasty, doesn't want to keep those around for long, which makes sense. Yep, fast. Um, and basically gets to work reunifying the kingdom, which has been divided for this whole previous, a long time, 300 years? 300? <laughs> yeah, 300 years. 350, yeah. I think. Yeah, a long, yeah. long time, few centuries. Long enough for no one to really remember, or no one to remember at all. I was acting like someone lived for 350 years. <laughs> um, for no one to remember what a unified China was like. Yes. So it's essentially a new thing. Yeah. So he, his first area that he gets conquered is Sichuan area in the south, which then gives him all the forces from there who are now, you know, have been forced to be loyal to him, assembles a great load of massive boats and basically builds an army that's more than 500,000 people strong. And the competing Qin dynasty was not able to do much against that. So they fell and he um, officially was... Lord of all. Yay. Apart from massacres, bad, bad massacres. Some bad purging. <laughs> Not great. But, yeah. you know. Uh, but one swings around about on that one, yep. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't create an empire without breaking a few eggs. I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what he did once all of that was sorted was introduce a, an empire-wide examination system because what he wanted was to find the most talented people in the kingdom, regardless of social class. So, okay, yeah, he wanted to find talented commoners with this exam and find anyone who was suited for government office, anyone who was suited for the military, that sort of thing. Um, and he also helped integrate his, his militarial, I don't know if that's the word, some military reforms yeah. helped integrate yeah. a lot of uh, ethnic minorities into society a little bit more. Uh, which is nice. That's a nice thing to do. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. Um, he also put in place a lot of agricultural reforms, uh, which led to incredibly high productions of grains and cloth. Um, he went around getting rid of some of the crueler legal punishments. Um, 
and also Rich. was pretty good about holding officials who committed crimes to to <laughs> account rather than just letting corruption stew in all the ranks of government. So this is pretty good. This is like pretty yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah a solid eight out of ten. Yeah yeah yeah, not bad <laughs> <laughs> on on um, subjectivity. On subjectivity, yeah, yeah. give him a solid eight. Yeah, um, um, and I would have to have to give him a solid. Nine or ten on um, battling. Battlingness is pretty well. good. Yeah. Yeah. How many, how many children did you? Have? Also, you set the throne, so that's pretty good for scandal. That is. I think you'd have to have a ten for battlingness. <laughs> so he died in six o four and was succeeded by his son Yang. And my favorite thing, possibly in this entire episode, is what happens next. One of the big points of Yang's reign. <laughs> Is that yep. he intem- attempted to invade Koguryo, uh, which is the area around modern Korea. I don't think the borders are quite okay. the same, but that sort of region. Yeah. He sent... It goes a- quite far, yeah. Yep. He sent a million troops into Koguryo, and uh, the the number that came back, 2,700. <gasps> Oof. <laughs> well, that's a bad day at the office. Yeah. Yeah, not great. Negative scores for Battliness, negative scores. <laughs> yeah, terrible Battliness. He did a bit better in uh, was now Vietnam. He retook Hanoi. Okay. Which is nice, gained a little bit of territory there, but I don't think it quite offsets the loss of literally a million it... soldiers. Yeah, that's really, that's hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, that's a bad time. It's a bad, bad time. Negative points, yeah. Um, But in the subjectivity area, Area. This is bad for people who have not listened to Rex Factor. We should stop doing it. <laughs> I strongly recommend that you listen to Rex Factor <laughs> from the beginning because it's amazing. It's very good. I just yeah. got up to Victoria, which is a lot of fun. The <sighs> five solid episodes of Victoria. I didn't realise how Alley. down to fuck she was. Yeah, she was real down to fuck, she specifically was a with Albert. Minx. <laughs> Only. Yeah, Albert. she loved it. Yeah, the best thing about those episodes is what listening to Ali get progressively more irritated by her diaries. Um, <laughs> he starts off thinking that she's all right, and then as it goes on, he's just like, "Oh, shut up!" <laughs> anyway, that's not China. Yeah. So Yang did not do well at battle at all. But what he did do was expand the canal system, Ooh. which meant that. Trade, it was very good for trade because you shipping things up canals is a lot easier than shipping them over road. It also meant that his enormous flotilla had plenty of room to float around. Yay! He had a flotilla that could hold his entire court. All of oh, the wow. all of the peers, everyone on one ridiculous flotilla. I mean, I do sort of feel like if you're going to be an emperor, then you should act like an emperor. I mean, that's fair. And that does feel like acting like an emperor, like wasting a million lives and building a massive flotilla. Yes. If we were, we would have to add our own Rex Factor there. That's just like, are you behaving like an emperor? Yeah. Imperial Splendor School. Yes. Yeah. Um, He also built a library and stored all the manuscripts he and his father had been dedicated to collecting, which was a massive deal because... Like his dad had collected just huge amounts of really important um, manuscripts and now they were officially stored and protected. And I think, I think a lot of them are extinct. Nice. You know, so good job there. Yeah. yeah. But all of this required a lot of labor. Yeah. I was going to say, it feels like possibly a lot of people did a lot of digging. A lot of people did a lot of digging and a lot of building 
with no good labor laws in place. <laughs> um, all of which was complicated by the fact that he refused to listen to bad news. Because he oh. just didn't want to deal with it. So he didn't know that rebellions were stirring across the empire. <laughs> until the rebellion spread into the high-ranking officials of his own government, upon which point some I don't think one of them was responsible directly. I think they like gave someone a key so he could be yeah. assassinated in his bathhouse. Amazing. And which was a massive surprise to a him. A massive surprise because he had no idea anyone was even unhappy. Um, Amazing. And that was the end of the Siri dynasty, which only lasted 20 odd years because the first guy, I mean, obviously a bit authoritarian, but did a lot of good. And then his son was just shit at everything. Yeah. There's always a rubbish son, isn't there? There's always a rubbish son. Right. There's almost never a a a good son. Yeah. Sons are bad, turns out. Don't have any. Yeah. Primogeniture just doesn't really work. No. Um, It just always ends up with someone. Like being a useless shit who builds a massive flotilla. Yeah, and they always the shittest sons always seem to come after the fathers who have done like a lot. Yeah, like your dad brings together China for the first time in almost four hundred years, and you just piss it all away, and you just fuck it up immediately. Yeah. Um, idiots. Yeah, um, yeah. We see a similar thing actually with the next dynasty, which is the Tang Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, who um, come to power as a result of that rebellion? It takes a little while. Um, it's founded by um, Li Wan, who is a general who um, leads a rebellion against um, Yang and um, defeats him by apparently killing him in his bathroom <laughs> um, in six eighteen, and then um, within five years, by six two four, they controlled the whole of like China, and he was the um, the emperor, and he was doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tang Dynasty is like the golden another golden age of Chinese imperial history. Yeah. And it's like in all of the books it's described as this golden age and it's founded by him. But and he does quite well for a few years. Um but um as soon as everything kind of settles down after he has defeated everybody and is like, I can now sit on my throne, I've got you know everything's good, I'm here in the capital, I'm pretty happy. He gets like eighteen months of that before his um youngest son, Lee Shimin, kills his older brother in front of the um palace um great, gets his guard to kill his other brother um so that's the other two people who were ahead of him um as heirs uh-huh. just uh, straight in front of everybody in the palace just straight up stabs them um then wanders into the palace and forces his father to abdicate wow that's a bold um, move yeah it was a very bold move it's kind of unclear what made him decide to do this because everybody kind of hated him for this um yeah i mean yeah. And there, there was a local legend that um after this happened he was sent to the underworld um and was tried by the king of the dead who's called yama who um asked him why the fuck he thought that he was allowed to go around killing his brother and overthrowing his father um and eventually the King of Dead only allowed him to return to the world of the living if he promoted, promised to promote Buddhism. Um, and the reason that that story is told is that once he kind of became emperor, he became like and promoted himself as like this benevolent um, 
kind of bureaucratic king Mm -hmm. um, who promoted Buddhism very strongly um, because Buddhism has entered um, China via the Silk Roads uh, during the period of disunity Mm -hmm. so um, and had started to take hold and um, there are some it, it doesn't settle in completely but um he promotes buddhism um as um as something which is worthwhile as something which is part of chinese culture he kind of he has his own tangles with um buddhist monks and nuns but he has he allows monasteries and things like that mm-hmm. um so buddhists think he's great he also introduces a thing called the tang code which is the earliest chinese law code which still exists in full and became like the foundation for Chinese law mm-hmm. and was adopted eventually by Japan, Korea and Vietnam oh, wow. as their kind of the foundations of their law codes in the end. And it aimed to make judgments and punishments kind of automatic and simple and fairly uniform across the whole place, like the whole of the land that he ruled. So Obviously, this depended on what your social status and ethnicity was. Mm-hmm. But still, if you were like of middle status in southern, the most southernmost tip of China, and then you're of middle status in the northernmost tip, then you would get the technically the same punishment for the same crime. Sure. So the local magistrate would basically listen and then identify what article of the code you had been violated and then they would administer it effectively and then he also made it so that he personally had to approve all uses of the death penalty which people liked quite a lot oh yeah that's quite nice yeah i mean it's not and quite he as also... nice as not having a death penalty but it's pretty good yeah but as things go yeah and he then also kind of promulgated a thing which was developed earlier but which was quite popular at the beginning and um, which was called uh i've lost what it's called it's called the equal field system Mm -hmm. and basically the rule goes that there's two different types of land there is land which is given to people by the state Mm -hmm. and so every married couple gets given a bit of land that they can look after Um, and then when they die instead of being inherited by their children it goes back to the state Sure, to be given to a new marriage couple, presumably. Exactly. And the idea is that by the time they die, their children will be married, so they will have been given their own land. And then there is smaller amounts of land which are supposed to be cultivated for crops which take generations to grow properly, mm-hmm. so silk and things like that, which are land which can be inherited. Sure. But there's specific amounts of land which can be inherited. So that's the idea. And then in return for being given your bit of equal land, you pay tax in like 10% of the grain or whatever you produce Mm -hmm. and in labour. So you give your labour as they all did. And that went very well for a while. And that also meant that because you got something in return for being registered on the tax register, Mm -hmm. um, the household register... Loads more people were willing to be registered. (laughs) So, like, the amount of people who were being taxed because they were on the house register went up significantly Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you got something in return for being legally existing, basically. So that was quite good. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so in the end, he'd start, as I say, started with a stabbing. Yeah, not the best way to kick off a rain, but he did some good things with it. But he did some good things after it, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, then after that, his son became emperor, 
but didn't last for a huge long time and is completely uninteresting because the most interesting person came next. So when Taizong died, all of his concubines were supposed to do what concubines are supposed to do, which is shave their heads and enter a nunnery. Sure. Makes sense. Um, I mean, what's left for them? Like their concubines, especially if if they had children, they were allowed to hang around because they were the mother of one of the emperor's children. Mm -hmm. But if they were childless, then you shave your head and you go off. But for some reason, one a woman called Wu Zhao didn't. Somehow she ended up sticking around Mm -hmm. the imperial palace. And very quickly, she ended up being Taizong's son's concubine. That's a bit And then a couple... It is a bit creepy. I mean, a lot of people think that, like, the reason that she stuck around was because she was already sleeping with his son. Uh. Um, But as we shall see in a second, maybe not. But she had his son's child in 652 and then became kind of his favourite. And then he upgraded her to proper wife. Mm -hmm. So out of and kind of got rid of his actual, his first wife and upgraded her to proper wife, which meant that she became the empress. Mm -hmm. In 660... Her husband had a debilitating stroke and was bedridden for the rest of his life. And so she kind of ruled in his stead. In 682, he died and she unofficially ruled until and kind of built a case for herself. And in 690, she had herself crowned empress. Oh, what a badass. Um, and was the one and only ever woman to rule China not as a region mm-hmm. or a dowager, um, but in her own name. And... She's called Wu Zetan. She ruled from 690 to 705. And she has come up in an episode before because yeah, she was... the name was familiar. <laughs> yeah. So she was in the episode we did about horrible women in history. Yes. Because she is remembered as one of the... As a kind of one of these terrible, monstrous women of history who was also a notorious whore and slept with everybody, mm-hmm. obviously. And she... Because she set up the secret police and... She had the like the nominations box, like where you could leave anonymous feedback, but the anonymous feedback was dobbing in your friends. For sure, things. sure. <laughs> and she developed a torture manual for her secret police, uh, which is called the Manual of Accusation, which contained things like the piercing of a thousand veins, the dying swine's melancholy, <laughs> and begging for the slaughter of my entire family. Those are some good titles. They were some really good titles. <laughs> Begging, I've said this before, this is episode six that we did, The Horrible Women of History, and um, begging for the slaughter of my entire family is like such a black metal, (laughs) like song title. (laughs) Um, It's so good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so she like she's remembered as this like great monstrous tyrant of history who like murdered everyone who looked at her and came up with all these terrible tortures. And eventually she was deposed in a palace coup. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're going to steal power, basically, from being a concubine to being the empress, like, you've got to be willing to back that up with some murder. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure, which she totally was, yeah. apparently. But I feel like a, a rule of history is if the, you start murdering people with the secret police and or torturing people who are quite high level, then someone will kill you eventually. Yes, that is people also don't true. like it, no, Janina. It's not, they don't it like it. It doesn't go down well. And that's no. and that's fine. That's fair, you know. You can't. Qu- I can't quibble with any of this. She wanted to be in power. She took it. She did all right. Um, yeah. And then was murdered for it. And I can't argue with any of it. 
Yeah, and the dynasty did amazingly for like the whole period. So it's six eighteen to nine oh six. It was, um, but the early period up to seven five five is like the best period. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of cultural openness and opening up, and like things, like there was a lot of contact culturally and through trade with like Central Asia and India and Persia, and. It, things from those places like buddhism became like super cool Mm -hmm. like the hit thing and there was a lot of kind of cultural communication and one of the books i think it was valerie hansen said like it was a period when chinese culture had the self-confidence to to communicate and to take on elements of other cultures Mm -hmm. rather than it didn't respond to a cultural control contact by kind of retreating and becoming conservative or like trying to protect Chinese-ness mm-hmm. but I kind of had enough self-confidence to to change a bit and it was terribly rich and everything was really great there were a couple of poems one's called Li Bai who is very popular mm-hmm. um, and is still remembered as being very popular and I found one of his poems which is called I hiked up Dai Tian Mountain but the Taoist is not at home which appears to literally be about him walking up to someone's house in the middle of nowhere and and he's not not there do you want to hear it it's really good i absolutely do so it's called i hiked up the dai tian mountain but the taoist is not home i can hear a stream and a barking dog and the smell of dewy peach flowers hangs in the morning air through the deep deep trees i get glimpses of deer the noon bell is drowned by the sounds of water Mist rises between the wild bamboo and the green mountains. Thin waterfalls hang in the air before the looming peak. No one knows where he went. I lean against two close pines and feel sadness. (laughs) That is so great. It just really feels like I came all this fucking way. (laughs) And no one knows where he is. Um, I like that a lot. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. There should be more poems about things like that. Yeah, apparently he is particularly remembered for writing mostly poems about drinking too much wine, which I like. (laughs) And then that one. (laughs) Yeah, so all of that, everything was going all right until 755. There was a massive rebellion called the An Lushan Rebellion. And An Lushan was a Persian general Mm -hmm. who, like I read a whole thing, but it's just like court politics, basically. Lots of court politics that ended up surrounding a wife that seemed to be involved for no good reason but ended up getting killed that saved nobody and anyway An Lushan rebelled and his rebellion hit the Tang dynasty very hard and destroyed essentially their central power mm-hmm. but m- most significantly it w- went on for so long and it was such a problem that it destroyed their ability to collect taxes which fucked the housing registration system and fucked the equal field system Mm -hmm. like it was such a massive like so many lives were lost so many cities were destroyed it was really nasty and it destroyed the central power and basically what it ended up being was that military provincial governors where it started collecting taxes and stopped sending them to the center right so they were just kind of twiddling their thumbs in the middle really they didn't really have that much power sure which then allowed palace eunuchs, once again, to seize most of the power in the centre. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole chapter in this book called The Rise of the Eunuchs, which 
is my band name for when I form a band. It's an excellent name. Yeah. And that eunuchs are like this really interesting thing in Chinese bureaucracy where they are primarily from very poor families who are sent, like boys who were sent almost like sacrificed to the center and the, they were supposed to be just kind of domestic staff in the imperial court in the women's quarters mm-hmm. but because in an an imperial royal system there is the domestic is the political yeah they become kind of a, an almost like a secret like they run everything because they run the household yeah and they have this whole thing where when a child is sent, they're adopted into eunuch families. And there's all these like almost like drag families mm-hmm. where there's eunuch families who are all like, so they're like little factions. And then so they rule everything. And eventually the actual emperor stops having any power because he can't get them to do whatever they want. Yeah. And then they become really formal and they set up like this council of eunuchs. And then it becomes like a formalized system of of kind of government almost of the court which yeah. is great for them and the court's going great but the rest of the empire kind of collapses into chaos yeah. in 860 and then there's loads of chaos until 907 when the last boy emperor is kind of knocked off often it ends with a the boy emperor him. who's knocked off they always end up with a boy emperor who is either killed by his regent or just like they put his belongings in a tiny suitcase and send him away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there is a kind of 50 year period until 960, which is called the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period, which is a lot of dynasties in 50 years. It's not a great name, you know? Doesn't it does, quite it doesn't trip off, off the, the tongue. tongue. Yeah. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but. Yeah, so that's the time. It started well. Yeah. And then it lasted for a solid, you know, a solid couple of hundred years. Yeah. Nearly 300 years, in fact. Did all right. So they did all right. Like a solid, it's a solid dynasty, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it makes, like, that's one of the ones that I think I would, like, before we had done, like, these episodes, if I had to name a few dynasties, that's one of the ones I think I could have. Yeah. You would know who they were. It's a recognizable name and i think that's clearly there's a reason for that yeah and you know they did they did all right yeah um yeah yeah and then then we get the song dynasty we do which i just put a note at the top because i think it's exciting there are a couple of important (laughs) worldwide firsts in the song during the song dynasty paper money and gunpowder very important things they basically created the modern world is what i'm hearing basically they did so once again, we have a dynasty that kicks off with a usurpation. Yep. Uh, and again, because of a child emperor. Yep. Always a child emperor. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the first emperor emperor of the Song dynasty in the first half, which is called the Northern Song, um, mm-hmm. is Emperor Taizu, who okay. seems to have at least practical reasons for usurping the throne from this kid, which is that there was an <laughs> impending invasion by the Catan tribe to the north. And he felt like there was an urgent need for a competent government. Fair. So just took over. Yep, fair. Um, and he spent the next 16 years conquering everyone else and reuniting all this territory <laughs> effectively. I, Sorry? I just want to say I enjoy their, like, 
excellent arrogance of like we need competent government and there's no one more competent than me <laughs> exactly all my thoughts are correct um, therefore i am yeah. the right person to lead <laughs> i've looked around everywhere i've found the best person turns out it's me to be yeah. fair <laughs> I do believe, and I think pro- most people probably do believe that if I were in charge, I'd, I'd have some good rules, some good laws. Yeah. In my benevolent dictatorship, things would be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd vote for you. Thanks. I mean, it's a and dictatorship. your rebellion against the crown. Yes. <laughs> it's a dictatorship, I have to. Yeah. Uh, um, although there's no point in rebelling against the crown, because the crown really has no power anymore. would have to rebel against Boris, which I have no problem true. with, because, no, I mean, I'm obviously. That too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so he, Emperor Tsaizu, puts an end to the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period, terrible name, Mm -hmm. um, and sets up a central central government in Kaifeng. And although he, like, because he knew that it's easy to get overthrown because he'd just done it to someone else, he set up systems to prevent anyone usurping his throne, uh, Mm -hmm. which he... Very smart. Yeah, and he did it by kind of giving with one hand and spying on with the other. So he was very generous to his government staff. He gave them very generous pensions and nice benefits like that, but also kept everything really central right where he was so he could be aware of everything that was going on within his government. Yeah. And it kind of worked. All of the conflicts during his reign was from non-Chinese states. Mm Mm-hmm. And he also was pretty diplomatic with that. Like there were there were some battles and those sorts of things, but he 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 concentrated on trying to make peace with everyone who was in conflict with them, which is good. That's good. good. That seems good like it seems like fair enough. He maybe was the most competent. Yeah, he may have been correct in his all of his assumptions. <laughs> um, yep. He also brought back the old civil service examinations which is Mm -hmm. when we mentioned them earlier in a previous dynasty where basically the whole population everyone examined yeah so to find talented people to be bureaucrats rather than making them inherited positions so it was merit-based rather than class or militarily based Mm -hmm. to promote people within the government he also was really keen on making sure there was efficient communication across the empire as part of it, there are a lot of projects to support that, including a really detailed atlas. He sent out cartographers across the whole empire to make super, super, super detailed maps that were then collected together in an atlas. Yep. Um, and he was really keen on science and tech. There was a lot of development. He wanted he wanted things to progress. Um, yeah, he was pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good guy. Pretty good guy. Yeah, pretty sensible. Maybe did the right thing overthrowing that child. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, yep. Um, reforms continued under the Emperor Xinzong, Xinjong, who mm-hmm. was very, very ahead of their time, put things in place like low interest loans for farmers and merchants so they could start businesses or advance their careers without relying on exploitative money lenders. Very good. Um, also put in place comprehensive land surveys to make sure everyone was paying the right amount of tax and that it was all fair and not. No one was being exploited and also no one was not paying enough um, and put mm-hmm. in place local militias to act as police forces in villages and small towns and that sort of thing. Oh, this is, uh, I didn't, oh, I didn't put in the, so there was a chief advisor who was sort of spearheading all of this who had come after 
a previous advisor called Fan Jean-Yen, who'd been forced to resign because his reforms had included pay bumps for minor officials, sponsorship programs to help the general population be more educated so that they there would be more people who were who had the education required to work in state service jobs. And this sounds very good. It's all very good, but the thing is people don't like reforms. Not the oh, people they do who hate are change. already in power. People who are yeah. already in power want things to say very much as they are. So after all of this good, good work, political factions began to develop into a bit of a problem, uh, which meant that a lot of the government's attention and a lot of the emperor's attention was focused on these little spiteful factions who wanted everything for themselves, basically. Um, and Curses. No one noticed that there was a bit of dissent <laughs> rising up in the north in the Liao state. So a rebellion sprang up up there, and it was put down after a couple of battles, but it proved to everyone that the Song Dynasty army wasn't particularly great and wasn't really up to defence. And war broke out with the northern Zhechen tribe, and the capital was lost. The Song forces were forced oh, no. to move south. And that is the end of the Northern Song Dynasty and the beginning of the Southern Song Dynasty, which is sort of less good because they've got a lot of ter- <laughs> territory. They've been shunted Doesn't. out of their previous position and they just have to get started with the little they have left, which does not okay. start well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It doesn't. Okay. I mean, it feels like, yeah, it feels like it started badly already due to being the remnants of a previous one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Problems break out because Emperor Gao Zhong negotiates peace with the now Zhechen Jin dynasty who has taken over in the north. Mm-hmm. So he, all of that conflict ended with a negotiation of peace between the two of them, but it wasn't particularly popular. And in particular, one of his generals, Yu Fei, uh, was very critical of, of him for basically brokering peace instead of fighting back. And he believed that they shouldn't have, the, that there shouldn't have been any loss of territory and basically it was super lame of the emperor to let it happen <laughs> okay so I mean fair yeah so the emperor Gao Zhong had him executed which kind of turned him into a martyr for for, for song patriots um, oh. which is not great the emperor had also agreed to make payments to the Jin dynasty and publicly acknowledge its superiority <laughs> like we pro- we really do think that you're better than us yeah basically which is not popular either And despite the fact that the Song Dynasty was then making these payments, these annual payments, the Zhechenjin continued to raid their territory (laughs) for the next 90 years. And they weren't destroyed until 1234, which was only because, as well as still fighting the Song in the south, they were warding off attacks from Mongols around them. Because this is 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 Genghis Khan times. Yeah. That's, that's winner things... of a previous episode. Yes, winner of the previous biggest, coolest guy of history. Was most powerful most power, person. Most powerful yeah. person in history, Genghis Khan, helps put down the Jin dynasty in the north. But it's not just because of him that they fell. The Southern Song government was super big on shipbuilding and they made massive harbor harbor improvements including things like building beacons and warehouses by the seaport so they could mainly so they could conduct trade like maritime trade a lot more easily Mm -hmm. but that also meant that they needed to protect their trade ships so they established a navy china's first permanent navy um, established in 1132 
good subjectivity. I know. And the ships were also super good. They had paddle wheels, which meant they were super maneuverable. And they had mm-hmm. trebuchets for their nice new gunpowder bombs because they invented gunpowder. Amazing. They were so effective that in a battle between the Song and the Jin, where the Song force had just 3,000 men and 120 ships, and the Jin force had 70,000 men on 600 ships, the Song routed them completely. Amazing. Which is super great because they're great, good ships and they're excellent. I mean, they sound... Like, I feel like the first time you saw a ship coming at you with gunpowder must have been genuinely terrifying. I know. Like, they just blew like, up the ship. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, what happened to swords, guys? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Amazing. But unfortunately, as ever, when you do something great, it costs money and they paid for it by confiscating land so that they could collect the rents instead Uh-oh. of the landowners, which didn't go down super well. Odd. Yeah, yeah. odd. Eventually... Things broke down. So they had destroyed, they did manage to destroy the Jushin Jin dynasty. But then what they did was try to retake their old territory, including their old capitals, mm-hmm. which did not go well with the Mongols, were, who were at this point led by Kublai Khan. So, yeah, he, yeah, I wouldn't fuck with him either. No, they did fuck with him, though, and he turned on them hard. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, pulled troops from other areas to focus on defeating the Song dynasty, and there were several years of battles. Initially, they did manage to push north and reclaim their old territories from the first part of the dynasty, but eventually they just started losing. Kublai Khan declared the start of the Yuan dynasty in 1271, and the last of the resistance Mm -hmm. was put down in 1279. The final emperor, 13-year-old Huai Zhong, died by suicide along 1,300 members of the royal clan. Um, His heir was four years old, Emperor Gong, and Kublai Khan was quite nice to him and the rest of the sort of remaining royal family. He was just demoted uh, to to Duke, I believe, and then exiled to Tibet, where he became a monk and and had a quiet monastic lifestyle until Kublai Khan's grandson, Gigin uh, Gigin Khan, not sure about that pronunciation at all, I'm very sorry, went over and forced him to commit suicide because he was so afraid that he would stage a coup and restore the lost Song dynasty, which is a pretty sad end. But it was a really advanced dynasty. There was loads of development. There were um, autopsies became really popular in this period so they could figure out how someone died, whether it was suicide, whether it was murder and how. They invented flamethrowers, grenades and landmines. In this time. Hell. I know. Oh my God. Appearing to, and they still, I mean, I feel like if they had been facing anyone other than Genghis and Kubla Khan, I know. then they would have fucked up everyone around them. But they just happened to be against like the greatest warrior and leader yeah. of all time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they weren't, when it was, when Genghis Khan was running things, they were allies. It was cool. Uh, so Kubla Khan, right Khan did fuck them up. They also invented at this time mechanical odometers. Cool. A statesman called Shen Q discovered that Earth is magnetic and the North Pole basically can be found using magnets. So they wow. started navigating with magnetic compasses. A guy called Su Song built a clock tower that had a rotating gear wheel that included intricate mannequins who could rotate past windows and like do things like little puppets. Like those like fancy ones that you get in European cities yeah. where they like do a thing on the hour and then they will come out and... Like the little puppets come out and do a terrifying thing. Yeah. Excellent. There were also some there was some good maths going on, which I don't necessarily understand, but happened. A guy called Yang Kui Hui 
uh, was the first to use negative coefficients of x in quadratic equations and proved, Euclid, <laughs> proved Euclid's parallelogram proposition, uh, which is imp- I'm sure is impressive. I could, Don't know what it means. Neither do I, but it was, I think it Sounds it's, very yeah, hard. He proved some maths and mm. that's impressive. A guy called B. Shang invented movable type printing using clay mm-hmm. fire typeface, which was eventually replaced by wooden typefaces. And also that is very the pound lock system was invented, which means that it was a, a means by which you could control the water levels in canals to raise or lower oh. as you needed, depending on what boats you had that had to go down them. And also watertight bulkheads on ships were invented, which meant that if your ship took damage to the hull it wouldn't sink which is very very handy i can't believe these guys were overthrown they sound amazing i know they invented so much shit and then the next guys really fucking hate them yeah (laughs) (laughs) um like it feels like they should have like they had a lot going for them that that was really just overrun by kubla khan yeah yeah basically yeah Yeah. well real shame because the next dynasty which is kubla khan's wan dynasty it's not as cool, to be honest, as that. I mean, it's quite good, <laughs> yeah. I guess. But it was a Mongolian dynasty. Mm-hmm. And as much as Kubla Khan kind of, in order to make his rule palatable, so this is from 1279 to 1398, um, by giving it a Chinese name mm-hmm. and setting up his capital in uh, Daidu, which is now Beijing, mm-hmm. he kind of incorporated lots of Chinese people and advisors into his court and told everybody that he had the mandate of heaven, which everybody agreed with due to the fact that he also had a big sword. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, um, and he kind of basically left everyone alone as long as they didn't oppose Mongol rule, unless you were from the song, the Southern Song, mm-hmm. in which case he hated you. Sure. And they were considered like the previous subjects of the Southern Song who were just called Southerners, were like the lowest of the low and got nothing. Like, they sure. were... Because what what happened during the Wan Dynasty was that there became quite distinct ethnic groups, particularly at the very top, but also built into the bureaucracy, whereby ethnic Mongols were very much at the top of the hierarchy and got special privileges sure. just for being Mongolian. And then people who were had been non-Chinese allies, so people like the Tibetans and and Turks and Persians were kind of second, and then everybody else. Sure. And then the Chinese, and then right at the very, very low. So northern Chinese were treated a lot better than southern Chinese. And, like, depending on where you were on that hierarchy, depended on how much tax you paid, so you paid much less tax if you are at the top. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you got in a court case or if you were... You're accused of something, then you got treated a lot better if you were higher on the um, hierarchy. Just like now. And so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so there was quite a lot of attempts to protect ethnic privileges, sure. basically, by preventing intermarriage, which then just causes crystallization of all these extra groups and da 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 da. da. Mm-hmm. And there was like a microcosm of this in the court because, as well as having Chinese advisors, he also had obviously Mongolian advisors, he had Central Asian Urgars and Persians and Tibetans and all kinds of people and they all were in their own little ethnic faction and they all fucking hated each other. Sure, that makes sense. But they all especially hated the Southern Chinese for being members, being subjects of the song um, and therefore the worst of the worst. Sure. 
for no real reason. <laughs> and it kind of basically his main achievements were that he brought kind of the brilliance of imperial administration in the Mongolian Empire to Chinese imperial bureaucracy. So in particular, he brought the postal system. Oh, that's handy. Um, yeah, because if you remember one of the great things about the... This is my friend Helen Rose's favourite thing about Genghis Khan, I think, mm-hmm. um, which is that he had a really good postal system, which is that they had postal stations, so you could ride really hard to a postal station and get on another horse and ride really hard to the next one, and there would always be another horse mm-hmm. at defined intervals. So your travel so you wasn't could... dependent on how tired your horse was. Exactly. Yeah. And you didn't have to, like, pace. If you wanted to travel 200 miles, then you knew that you could do that in stages on different horses and then the horse would have time to recover. Genius. It's very good. It is. And they really took to that and they did lots of impressive building projects and they expanded the massive Grand Canal. And But mostly they just kind of eyeballed everybody and kind of ruled this place until they had... They got a solid 100 years, which isn't bad. But eventually they fucked it up because they didn't... They had paper currency, but every time that they wanted to do a war or do a massive building project, they just printed more money. And we know how that goes. It does not go well. It does not go well. (laughs) There were several failed attempts towards the kind of middle to the end uh, to invade bits of Southeast Asia um, and to invade. There were two attempts to invade Japan and they all failed. They all cost a lot of money. There were also a bunch of natural disasters and plagues which happened Mm -hmm. and they just kept printing money to deal with it. And what they very swiftly found out is that when you print lots of money, you get hyperinflation and that fucks everybody. And so the combination of hyperinflation plus the fact that they'd started to look weak plus the fact that people were suffering and they weren't really able to do anything about it from plagues and things like that meant that they they kind of crumbled essentially in on itself. Yeah. And it this was combined with the fact that this is during this dynasty is one of the first times that China comes into proper contact with Europe and people like Marco Polo start coming to China. Mm-hmm. And this is the period where we have Marco Polo's writings. He spent 20 years living in one ruled China and he wrote quite a lot about how there were like strong ethnic divisions and he wrote loads of good stuff and that was great. And it was really great for the West to be like, ooh. And the West thought that China was amazing in this kind of like, look at what these people have invented. We want that and that and that. We would quite like this printing thing you've got and we would quite like paper. That sounds good. And gunpowder is brilliant. And the Chinese were significantly less impressed with the Europeans and European culture, which they thought was horrendous in almost every way, provoking quite conservative reactions of like desperate attempts to nail down a Chinese-ness that could be protected against both the Mongol rule and all of this European bullshit that they were suddenly confronted with. Mm. So it ended in kind of a bad time of everybody coughing themselves to death, surrounded by massive piles of money that meant nothing. That is a shame. It was a shame. Yeah. And that all ended in 1368, and that was the... uh, 1398, sorry, and that was the end of... End of Mongol rule. Well, that's a shame for them. (laughs) But it does lead us into um, another exciting one that people will know, which is the Ming Dynasty. Like the dynasty, yeah. The dynasty. The dynasty of vases. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't tell you why they were so good at vases, but I know of their vases. Yeah, they had a lot. They had a lot of vases. 
Which we'll get to. I mean, not in great detail. We'll probably just mention them. But they'll come up. <laughs> We're not doing anything in great detail. <laughs> so uh, Ming Dynasty kicked off with a guy called Zhu Yanzhang, who was one of just two commoners to ever hold the title of Emperor of China. Mm-hmm. Um, I like his start. He was the, he was the <laughs> son of a farmer and became a Buddhist monk due to abject poverty, which is not a great reason to get into religion, in my opinion. I mean, um, yeah. Which we'll see why it's not great in just a moment, because eventually, during the final chaotic years of that, uh, of the Yuan dynasty, some Mongols destroyed his monastery, and he decided oh. to get revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Which is not the most sounds like, thing I've ever heard, but I love it. It sounds like the beginning of a film starring Jason Statham, though, so... It <laughs> 100% does. Um, yeah. So he became something of a leader amongst the various warlord groups who were uh, rising up against the Yuan dynasty towards the end there. And in 1358, he conquered the city of Nanjing and renamed it Yang Fu, which means capital responsive to heaven. So effectively saying to everyone, I'm going to be emperor, motherfuckers, you cannot stop me. This, this is the real center. Yeah. Unlike that non-heavenly capital. <laughs> exactly. So he and the rest of the warlords keep on fighting for the next few years. And eventually, eventually in 1368, he proclaims the Ming Dynasty. Actually, a few months before they'd really put everything to rest sufficiently. But, you know, mm-hmm. what's a few months between friends? Yeah. In the grand scale of history, barely means nothing. Yeah. So Ming means like vibrance or illumination or brilliance. So it's a bit rude, kind of like mm-hmm. I'm gonna make things shine again after the after, after the, the shit period yeah. previously. Um, I mean, yeah, basically. I don't know that Kublai Khan and his his descendants required politeness. So that's, fine. <laughs> that's fair. Um, he called himself Emperor Hong Hong Wu, mm-hmm. and set about making sure that no one would invade his brand new shiny dynasty. He implemented a social system that promoted a permanent military class and made sure that the army had at least one million soldiers. <laughs> Which is fair, I think, after That's everything. a lot of soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> Although I suppose if you've got like 60 million things or so people in your... Yeah, yeah, it's not... Per capita, it's probably not that much. Yeah, like 60 million people. I mean, it's probably even more than that by this point. Yeah. A million's not that bad. No. He restored old uh, Confucian values and established a lot of schools, schools everywhere across the empire, some which were state-run and some which were private. Um, and he brought back the old civil service exams that we've heard about a couple of times now, although mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't particularly impressed by the initial results, so he suspended them. Well, he, he didn't suspend them. He cancelled them, then brought them back 12 years later. He's just like, no, nah, this is shit. I'm not going to do it for a while. <laughs> Uh, did a massive purging, actually did quite a lot of purging. He was a bit, yeah. I think it seems like he was a bit paranoid and suspicious. So he purged the bureaucracy, the military, and just generally the populace, totting up just thousands and thousands of executions, which isn't great. Bad times, um, bad subjectivity. He even executed his own chancellor for treason. Don't know whether mm. or not that was fair. Uh, I'm going to say probably not. But he but... didn't refill the position, so he basically acted as his own chief minister. Excellent. I guess if you can't take advice from yourself, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah. But he did also establish something that would last, uh, outlast him by years. He he pulled together a group of the scholars, like the top scholars in the kingdom, to be his informal advisors. 
and later on that group was formalised as the Grand Secretariat, which lasted until the end of the Imperial Era. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I, that's I like, not bad. I like the idea of actually getting advice from people who have studied things yeah. rather than just your mates. I feel like all your members of your family. It feels like yeah. that thing, you know. The only qualification is that they know you. Every so often someone somewhere tweets out that, like, shot of the Canadian government where it's like the head of environment has this is a scientist and the head of education used to be a teacher and it's they're all qualified for the positions they hold and it's yeah like staggeringly unusual it is yeah. although i feel like canadians are probably still like they're real shit do you remember yeah, that canadian guy who did the ama a few like a month or so ago and was like yes i have met the aliens and he's like the ex-secretary of state for canada <laughs> and yeah. He's like, yes, I met the aliens. I met the one who lived in the White House, and da, 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 and they told me they gave me the power of telepathy, and everyone was like, okay. Was that <laughs> AMA verified? Yeah, it was. It really oh, was him. Wow. He really is like that. Cool. Uh, <laughs> um, cool, anyway. cool and great. The world yeah. is on fire. Anyway, so own chief advisor has his wee group of of scholars. That's all he does of note. Um. <laughs> okay, good for yeah. him. Could be worse. Um, the, so it's the the secretariat and the, the murdering. Yes, Grand Secretariat, yeah. a lot of murder. It's <laughs> when the dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, has its, its third emperor, Zhu Di. The second emperor didn't last very long. He ended up being in a building that was on fire, like after three years of his reign, and died in that fire, uh, which is a mm. shame. It was in a battle. It wasn't a random fire. Oh, it was okay, like, it wasn't just. A, um, okay. It was a a battle, and someone burned down the building. So the third emperor Zhu Di, who uh, his reign is name uh, reign name was Yongle, so this is he's called the Yongle Emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the one that moved the capital to Beijing, which had been renamed at the beginning of this dynasty. Okay. And during his reign, the city was reconstructed, including the building of Tiananmen Gate and the Forbidden City. So they both they both again ups and downs yeah, yeah. crop up during this time. But at this, during his reign, there is also an invasion by the, oh, actually, no, I think this is another emperor, Emperor Jingtong, during his reign, the Oirat Mongols invaded and kidnapped, um, oh, they didn't kidnap him, he decided to go out on battle himself to be with his army, and they captured him during the fight. <laughs> so his brother, Zhu Qiu, was left as regent. But unfortunately for the <laughs> Mongols, Zhu Qiu just proclaimed himself emperor, so their hostage basically was useless because they were like, "We've captured your emperor. What are you going to do?" And they were like, oh, "Just this guy's mm, emperor got now." Another one, yeah. <laughs> got lazy, yeah. Him. Got a whole stack. So they just let him go, and he went back oh. home and ended up retaking the throne. And this is he. He put a new. There's a new reign name from this point, which is Tian Shun. Okay. But the threat of invasions lead to a lot of fortification projects of the Great Wall. Um, because the they were wall, yes. a bit afraid that that was going to happen. But the dynasty starts to fail a bit later under the reign of the Wan Li Emperor, who um, had relied on his grand secretary, a guy named Zhang Shuzhing, Shuzhing, sorry, mm-hmm. who was really, really good at just managing all the nobles, like very, very diplomatic, and managed to create this secure, stable network of allegiances. Okay. But then he died and no uh. one else could kind of manage all of the people in the same way that he had. So the stability faltered and um, again, the court was consumed by factions and battling and a lot yeah. of problems there. 
Wan Lee didn't much enjoy any of this, so he just <laughs> didn't deal with it. He retreated to the Forbidden City more and more, where his officials couldn't get to him, and all communication had to go via his eunuchs, who required a lot of bribes. And yeah. again, we have a problem with the eunuch situation, because at the beginning of the dynasty, the rules about eunuchs, what they could and couldn't know, were very, very strict. They weren't allowed to be educated about politics. They weren't allowed to know basically what was going on so that they could be mm-hmm. essentially just messengers who could be trusted because they literally couldn't read or understand yeah. the messages they were be- being given. But over time, that had shifted and they had become, again, their own bureaucracy, which they managed pretty ruthlessly. And it with mm-hmm. this happening, with their literal emperors refusing to talk to anyone else, they become tyrannical. Yeah. And that just keeps growing into the reign of the next emperor, the Tianqi Emperor, where one eunuch in particular, a guy called Wei Zhongxian, was powerful enough to have his rivals just tortured and executed whenever he wanted. He had vast temples built to, in his own name throughout the empire. Oh, wow. Embezzled a yep. lot of funds so that he could build personal palaces <laughs> and just generally trumped his way around promoting his friends and family to positions they were not at all qualified for. Wow. As he's doing all of this with imperial funds, the economy is down the pooper because... International trade is faltering in the wake of advanced European exploration. So all of the, mm-hmm. like they had, uh, China had relied a lot on trading silver, but then Spain got a lot of silver and started to kind of edge them out in that market. So once we get into the 1640s, there's just widespread, oh, I just scrolled and I've lost, a widespread poverty, huge <laughs> amounts of starvation. And the army, army had been doing a bit shit. So people started rebelling against them. So rebellions are rising in the sort of rural areas. There's a guy called Li Li Zhiqing, who calls himself the Prince of Shun, mm-hmm. who is rallying people behind him. And then there are battles with the Manchus, which are going so badly that a key Chinese general, Wu Sangui, just leaves and sides with the Manchus instead. Um, The army at this point is really undernourished and unpaid. So basically not putting (laughs) up much of a fight. And eventually the Manchus with Wei Sangui take the capital and proclaim the Shunji emperor ruler of all China. Um, There's still a bit of resistance for a while, but all of that is defeated over time. And in 1662, the last Ming emperor dies. So that's it it's all done but there's some interesting stuff in there there was a really formal designation amongst society all roles were hereditary you were a peasant or a soldier or an artisan or there are the mean people which is interesting i want to be one of those mean people basically were servants and prostitutes and grunt workers Mm. essentially so maybe maybe not so oh okay so not mean like grumpy people no just like mean like rubbish people yeah basically Mm. also bad i take it (laughs) there was a formal system by which all communities were formed into units of exactly 110 households and that unit would have a collective responsibility for paying taxes and keeping their own order and maintaining morality Mm-hmm. There was a massive industry. So the fa- fabric industry expanded. There was lots going on there. There were massive amounts of vases being made, obviously. Also, yeah. um, exciting new crops coming from the Americas, including peanuts, corn, and potatoes. All very, very important yeah. things. So I, 
It kind of makes me feel sad that people live for so long before well, without having them. peanuts. I know. Yeah, or potatoes. Maybe potatoes, right? Like so much of European history and Asian history without a potato. Poor, poor things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was also a really good uh, time for art and academia. This is the point where the chi- Chinese characters are codified in a dictionary called the Zihui. Uh, there's a precise number of I, I, just the strokes by which you form a character are very clearly defined at this point. And also the Yongle Didion is created, which is an incredibly vast encyclopedia, including the transcription of just loads and loads of important cultural texts that are just collected together for the first time in this one encyclopedia, which apparently is not really a fitting word for it, but we don't have a direct word in English. I don't have a better word in English. There are also loads of novels and plays and operas. Apparently there are 12,000 operas from the Ming Dynasty that are still known and performed today. It's too many operas. It is too many operas, but they've lasted a long time, so good on them. They have. I assume they're good in that case. Well, I mean, when you look at how much Gilbert and Sullivan has lasted until today, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, just old, really, just popular. Mm -hmm. Like, doesn't mean good. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so the next dynasty, uh, that dynasty founded by the Manchu people who come from, and this will shock you, Manchuria. Uh, <laughs> which is technically outside of the Great Wall and is kind of to the east of Mongolia. Mm-hmm. And they were able to kind of grow into a big state because they were outside of the Great Wall and no one was paying them very much attention. So they kind of were able to get together. Um, they're kind of they're non-Chinese people, mm-hmm. uh, Manchu people, and they were able to get together and form alliances and be very strong. So by the time they appeared, they, they waited for their moment. And by the time they appeared on the scene to fuck with the Ming, they were already strong enough to fuck with everybody. So they turned up and were kind of seen by the Ming rebellion, rebels even, as kind of foreign auxiliaries that they would be able to pay off and send home. But they were like, nah, mate. (laughs) And they helped to sack Beijing in 1664 and then entered and then popped Shunji on the throne, he being at the time six years oh, old. Oh, cool. Good, good <laughs> controllable. Yes, it was his uncle who was the regent, but he ruled until 1661, so he'd had a reasonably good length. Uh, and then the next three emperors all were massively into expansion Mm -hmm. and so they pushed the borders of china as far as they could go they pushed into taiwan and tibet and outer mongolia and up to the north and down and really far out my favorite story about this part is that so Qianlong is the third of those emperors and he in an act of great filial piety in order to emphasize his confucian piety to his family he resigned in order to make sure that his reign was one day shorter than his grandfather's <laughs> so in order to make a big point about not overshadowing his and his ancestors Aww. but he kind of made state obviously like his child took over so he kind of maintained in the background until he died but i just quite like that as a statement (laughs) and they kind of maintained a fairly specific ethnic identity or where manchu were very specifically different from han chinese so one of the things they did was forbade manchu women from foot binding Mm -hmm. 
that being a Han Chinese thing and they like, refused to get involved. I mean, that's fair. The, yeah, I mean, fair. Um, but the main things that happened are that this is the period where China is really, really... The world is globalising, mm. basically, and international trade is developing hugely fast with massive navies in Europe and Japan and the Americas. Mm. And Europe is all over the place, getting in everyone's business from pretty much from the beginning of this dynasty. They are dealing with the British and the French and basic. And then like towards the end of it, the after the American Revolution, they're dealing with the Americans and they're dealing with all kinds of bullshit. And the Japanese are very strong and it's become like eventually it becomes a problem before all of that. They do these huge state sponsored literary projects which are funded by the fact that international trade is in China's favour for a long time. They're exporting lots and getting lots of silver Mm -hmm. and um, they're making loads of money. So they have these things called the Synthesis of Books and Illustrations Past and Present, which was done between 1726 and 1728 when they just synthesised all the books. And a thing called the Evidential Research Movement, which was kind of first movement of critical analysis of Chinese literature. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this is also the period at which Christianity starts moving really strongly into China and they keep trying to put it down. But there are Catholic and Protestant missionaries crawling all over the place, converting people, which is causing a problem as well, because Christianity being individualist does not mesh well with collectivist Confucian philosophies. So it causes social problems. But... Everything was kind of ticking along all right at the top and everything probably would have ticked along all right for a lot longer if it hadn't been for the fact that when we get to the 19th century, the British really start fucking shit up. Mm -hmm. We have two opium wars, which resulted from the Daoguang Emperor... Uh, attempted to stop opium importation into China because it was draining their silver reserves and fucking the population. Mm -hmm. And he also wanted to restrict British traders to specific ports because he didn't like them, which is fair. He tried various ways to stop it peacefully, including writing a letter to Queen Victoria, which she never replied to. Rude. Yeah. Especially since I now know that she wrote Two and a half thousand words a day in her diary. So she just specifically ignored it. So she, yeah, so he confiscated all of the British opium. He went into the merchant area, confiscated it and destroyed it. And the British sent the Navy with a load of gunships, which were much better than everyone else's gunships, and absolutely just destroyed the Chinese Navy and destroyed the cities and forced them to, in 1842, sign the Treaty of Nanjing, um, which kept... Uh, opium legal and gave them lots of privileges, opened more ports to British trade so they could get to more places mm-hmm. and gave Hong Kong to Britain. Well, fuck the empire, basically. The British yeah. empire, I, I should say. <laughs> and then in 1856, there was another breakout because the British wanted even more from China. Yes, it is. And uh, in 1856, they got the French involved and there was lots of fighting, lots of battles all over, which ended with the summer palaces of the of the emperor being destroyed, being burnt down, and the emperor and his court having to like flee into the night, basically. Mm-hmm. And they were forced to sign in 1860 the Convention of Peking, 
which allowed the British to take indentured Chinese people to the Americas and sell them, basically. It gave the British and French preferential trading terms and preferential insurance terms. Uh, It fully legalised the opium industry and also legalised Christianity. A lot of indentured servants at this time also going to New Zealand, being forced to work in the gold mines on the west coast of South Island. Yeah, so they were kind of shipped out. It's no good. In the middle of this, like after the first Opium War and before the second one, there was a Taiping Rebellion, which was one of the worst civil wars in modern history and claimed, and I quite like the massive gap in this, 20 to 30 million Chinese lives, Mm -hmm. which is a 10 million person gap. But it began because a guy called Hong Ji Kuan failed the provincial civil service exam so many times that he turned to Christianity (laughs) and then became convinced under the tutelage of a Baptist from Tennessee that he was Jesus's younger brother who had been sent to earth to expel the demons who he thought were the Manchu. And you would think that would last maybe eight minutes mm-hmm. until somebody was like, you're right, mate. But it didn't. It cost 20 to 30 million Chinese lives. And the having to fight this plus the opium wars plus the shattering humiliation mm-hmm. of the Treaty of Nanjing and the Convention of Peking basically just completely destroyed their sense of self almost and strengthened there became all of this kind of like internal worrying about how strong the west was and this feeling that china should self-strengthen by learning from western technology and structures surpassing the barbarian west by marrying those things with superior chinese values and philosophies Mm -hmm. which was called chinese learning as the essence and western learning as practical use which again doesn't roll off the tongue but Basically, that promoted lots of industrial development, which along with it promoted westernization, basically mm-hmm. ideals of uh, of democracy and that kind of thing. And those started to take root over that hundred year period. Mm-hmm. In 1900, there was the Boxer Rebellion, which was led by a group called the Society of the Righteous and Harmonious Fist. <laughs> that is very good. <laughs> It is very good. And they were called the boxers because the society, which was a secret society, were very into physical exercise. So the Americans and British called them the boxers. Sure. And they tried to drive out Western and Japanese influence in northern China, had to be put down by the Chinese, the Qingon dynasty had to bring in the Americans and various other countries to help them put it down. And then the Chinese government had to pay $330 million in reparations to all of the people that came to help. <sighs> Oof, that's um, a good rebellion. That was, they should feel proud of what they did. <laughs> yeah, which really undermined them even further. And they became very kind of weak and there was a lot of push to, to change and... In 1905, the government issued the outline of the constitutions, which officially made the emperor a constitutional monarchy Mm -hmm. and gave the first kind of bill of rights and responsibilities. In 1908, uh, local provincial assemblies were established to bring in kind of local democracies almost, and then a national consultative assembly in 1910. And then civil rights revolutionaries revolted in the 1911 Revolt, which is just called the 1911 Revolt. And the last emperor, who is called Xuantong, but is known as Puyi, abdicated on the 12th of February 1912. And that was the last ever Chinese emperor. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And now Republic. 
basically the British ruined everything. Yeah. And then brought in the, they then they brought in the Republic and then the Republic was kind of chaos and then Mao Zedong. Cool. Yeah, well done colonialism. You fucked it again. <laughs> <laughs> it went so well but they did get to sell all of that apium and some people got very rich. yes well that's nice for some i mean and i do believe in democracy you know give people a vote i'm not i'm not a monarchist at all i don't think <laughs> empires are good whether they cover you know but like come on britain just like let people like come on just let people shush, live shush pipe down yeah so that is your dynasty by dynasty breakdown of Chinese history. This one's quite long uh, as an episode goes, but we did we it. We did do it. We, oof, that might be our longest episode to date. I think that might be our longest episode. As it turns out, you cannot do it in an hour. <laughs> an hour and a half. Two and a half hours of Chinese history. Two and a half hours is no. We cannot give you an yeah. hour long dynasty <laughs> breakdown. But that is it. A uh, lot of yeah. wars, a lot of emperors, a lot of death, a lot of... Lots of innovation. Yeah, yeah. But next week we're going to look at something which is the exact opposite of innovation. Well, innovation eventually. Eventually. Next week we're answering a question from at Mang Mang Mang, which is, tell me about gynecology and history. Why do forceps still look the same as they did thousands of years ago? So this is going to be comfortable for everyone to listen to. Yeah. So we've gone from the very, very big to the very narrowly focused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about gynecology. Yeah. So that should be fun. So that should be fun. Hopefully this has been a non... Hopefully our pronunciation has been not completely horrific. Yeah, we did our best. Um, and we're very sorry about all the times we fucked it up. But we did our best. Yeah. And we learned a lot. And, the you know, maybe the real friends were the emperors we met along the way. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> what are we talking about next Where time? Where can people find us, Gina? Oh. We're talking about oh, going to college, Gina. This is... I feel like this is breaking. Yeah, us a ninety minutes that I fall apart. Turns out, like this was a lot of Chinese history. Yes. So, if you have a question, maybe something a little bit simpler, then please <laughs> tell me everything about all of Chinese history. You can tweet it at us at sixty history pod. Yes, or you can go to our Facebook page, which is sixty uh, without the e history pod. Or you can email us at sixty history pod at gmail or you can go to our Kofi page where we also put all of the sources that we use. And the this one will be the same as last week's, but I am going to put up a thing about the Three Kingdoms and the kind of period of disunity mm-hmm. as well because I found a good YouTube video. And that is at, the easiest way to get there is bit.ly slash support sexy history. Yeah. Or it is kofi.com slash hispod. Yes. And you can find me... If you want to talk to me, my book just came out in America. So should you wish to tell me how much you enjoyed it? Don't tell me otherwise. <laughs> then you can find me at, at Nuclear Teeth. It's very good. So if you've been waiting, if you're an American listener and you've been waiting, jump on it. It's very, very good. There's so much swearing. So much swearing. Where can people find you, People Janina? can find me at J9 and if. And they can find Oliver, who has to edit this solid 90 minutes worth of stuff, <laughs> at, at Kiwa. And that's hey, it. Yeah. Leave reviews, say nice things about us, tell your friends. Ask us questions, we like questions. We do like questions. And then, yeah, join us next time to talk about fannies. Yay! Yay! Bye, Bye, Janina!